Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. This morning is the 110th Psalm, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning at the 15th verse. For this reason, because I have heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness uh, is his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ages to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's talk about power. That's what you came to church to hear about, right? What do you think of when you hear the word power? Is it a bad word? It seems like either we, we, we often fall, either, either it's a bad word or it's the only thing, right? It's a bad thing or it's the only thing that we can strive after. If it's, if it's a bad thing, I think some of us act as if we just need to eradicate all power and I don't know what you have left. You just have a vacuum that will be filled by other powers. But if it's the only thing, then, then we're left with this sort of Nietzschean will to power. Like that's all we can really do. Let's all just fight and scrap for the most power that we can get, that our family can get, because that's all there is. Well, the Romans also knew a lot about power, the ancient Romans. There was certainly an overwhelming force, an overwhelming power in their 
in their world, the empire. The emperor was at the top of this very carefully organized and and looked after hierarchy. And if you were one of the lucky few to be in that hierarchy, then you had some power, but most of us would have had none, would have simply tried to submit and obey that power. The ancient Romans had a lot a lot to say about that. There was also another power at work, especially in the city of Ephesus, where this letter is addressed to, and that was the power of magic. We may not think of that as a very significant power, uh, but it certainly was conceived that way. So either you had the, ma- the power of military might, political power, or magical power, spiritual of some sort power. That was their biggest concern in ancient Ephesus and in ancient Rome. And Paul is writing very much aware of that, very much aware of that context and that situation. And he is trying to say there is a whole other kind of power. There's a whole other sort, a whole other powerful one. That is the one we have to deal with. That is the one that he gets really lost in proclaiming as he tells them what he is praying for. So we are in the second half of Ephesians 1, and Paul has finished his blessing, his greeting, and he then goes to how he prays for them. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray ourselves. Lord, we know, we know even without this reminder from Ephesians 1 that we simply need you. And so we ask, just as Paul asked, that you would enlighten our hearts that you would open us up to the immeasurable greatness of your power? Would you speak? Would you comfort those who are broken and downtrodden? Would you challenge and convict those who are stubborn and hard-hearted? Lord, we ask that you would meet us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Looking at this second half of chapter one, uh, I want to look at three aspects of God's power. And the first one is simply that God's power is a gift, something to be asked for. But I want us to, to just sort of realize and maybe wonder in awe, why did Paul even move past verse 14? So verse four, we spent three weeks, the last three weeks in verses 1 through 14, trying to just soak in the goodness of those blessings, because he has said, in Christ, you have been given every spiritual blessing. And he says, you have been chosen, adopted as his beloved, in his beloved You have been forgiven and given redemption. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, predestined from the beginning of the world. And it kind of begs the question, what more is there to say? Why verse 15? Why not just stopping there or maybe jumping to chapter 2 to explain more about what that blessing is? is 
Why does Paul have this sort of chutzpah, this, this daring boldness to ask for more? How could you ask for more than that, Paul? We've already been given so much. We already know where we're going eternally. What is there to pray for? Well, I think it is consistent because Paul knows who God is. He remembers the lavishness of God's grace. That this truly is who God is. He wants us to experience more and more of who he is. That we cannot stop. We're not going to get to an ending point. Even, even in heaven, even in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be more of God to experience. It's hard for us to imagine. We don't interact much with infinite things. But we will not ever stop. That's who this God is. And so Paul can say, for this very reason, because of the magnificent riches and grace of God, I pray these sorts of things. It is interesting. I think maybe a lot of us love the first part of Ephesians 1, especially if we are good, reformed theologians. We love Ephesians 1, the first part, and don't really know what to do in the second part. We can just skip that, move on. Let's not skip it. So, what does he ask for? Did you notice it's kind of a strange thing to ask for? Maybe not the first thing you would have assumed he would ask for. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then to know certain things. To know the hope, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. But I want us to just notice first, why does he even ask for these things? Knowledge is not something we normally ask for, is it? Knowledge is something we go out and get. Knowledge is something I can study, I can read for, and I can go out and grasp it. Why would I have to pray for it? This... This is a challenge to me. You know, I would pray for more time to read so I can grow in my knowledge. Which is not a bad thing. But if we don't read prayerfully, study prayerfully, then the knowledge that we gain is going to be for naught. So why does he have to ask for this? Well, I think it's simply because God reveals God. God reveals God. It's not something we figure out, decode, earn, deserve. It is God that reveals God, and it is God's Spirit that has to open up our hearts and minds. It is not something we can figure out on our own. And in fact, we can have all of the supposed right information and be horribly lost and sinful. 
The demons in the Gospels know who Jesus is. They have all the knowledge they need. They just don't want to worship him. So he asks. He asks for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, like the the fog of our hearts to be defrosted, that we would truly see. Even, Even to have the humility to ask is itself something that we want to ask for. To have that sort of childlike dependence. I was reminded of, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, one of my favorite, my favorite of his, and then one of the favorite parts of that is this interaction between a guy from hell and a guy in heaven. And the guy from hell is very proud of what he has done. He's like, I have only asked for whatever I've deserved. I've paid for what I got. I've earned my wages. I just come to get my rights. And the guy in heaven says, oh no, it's not as bad as that. You're not going to get your rights. And I haven't got mine either. And then the guy comes back and says, oh, I'm, I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And the man who is just consumed in the glory of God says, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. Asking is the currency of the kingdom. It is the currency of the kingdom and it's makes sense why it's hard for us to ask because we trade in all sorts of other currencies, don't we? We act as if there are a lot of other currencies that are more important to acquire. So his, the first aspect of this God, of being God's power is that it is simply a gift that we can dare to ask for. Do you ask? Do you pray? But I think sometimes we, we make prayer a lot harder than it seems to be. I would encourage you simply pray these words. Go to every, almost every start of Paul's letter. He gives you a prayer. Just pray that. The Lord's Prayer. Just pray that. Let those be the skeleton, and then you will add meat to that. The meat of your life, the meat of your sin, the meat, whatever, that will frame your prayer. That's all you have to do is ask and get over, get over yourself that you don't want to ask. That is often the harder part. But don't be afraid. Don't, don't be shy to use these sort of helps, these skeletons of prayer. Spontaneous prayer, I think, is the hardest So don't think, oh, when I close my eyes, my mind wanders, so then I never pray. Well, yeah, of course. Then pray with your eyes wide open. You don't have to close your eyes. There's not some rule. Spontaneous prayer, that's hard. That means it has to flow from your heart, who you are, who you've become. That's, That's hard. All right, dare to ask. Dare to ask for God's power. And then the second point is, <clears throat> excuse me, is trying to get at why. 
Why should we ask? And it is because God's power is an immeasurably great fact. It is something that has been declared, put on display because of what he has accomplished. Where do I see that? Well, <clears throat> this is one of the, some of the amazing parts is just the fact that Paul says, according to, like you should have prayed according to. What is, what is the basis, the power, the, 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 the reason? Well, pray according to what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It is connected always to who Christ is now. What he has done tells us just who we can pray to. Raised from the dead, remember, that is what this is all about. Death has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. He has gone through death and come out the other end. He is raised and he is seated. Seated being that metaphor of a king who on his right hand is his most powerful lieutenant, if you will. And so that metaphor is used, which is pulled from Psalm 110, which is why I had it read. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted Old Testament verse in all the New Testament is that obscure Psalm 110 which Jesus quotes and sort of tricks the Pharisees because they don't understand it either. But really it is understood in Trinitarian terms. The Father says to the Son, now sit down. Having ascended to the right hand, he says, now sit down. You have conquered. You are the conquering lamb until I make all of your enemies your footstool. And so this to Paul tells us something about the power in the world. That he has been exalted, we are told, in the heavenly places at the end of 20. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does it mean that he has been exalted in the heavenly places. Well, I think that's, that's one of those words that is not, it's not a terrible synonym to just say the spiritual dimension. If you watch Stranger Things, the upside down is not a terrible metaphor for the heavenly places. It's where the spiritual dimension is. If you say where, then you're in spatial terms. It's not really spatial. It's maybe transspatial or whatever. But it's, it's that place where, like, if you pulled back the wall, it would be there. But, it, but, it's, but it's everywhere. It's a spiritual dimension. But as soon as we, see, we say spiritual, we, we think it means not quite as real, like not quite as powerful. Like there's real power and then there's spiritual power. No, it's spiritually real power. We believe in the spiritual, real presence of Christ in the table. 
Not because it's any less powerful or real. In fact, because it's more so. Not limited by space and time. Like a fourth dimension, whatever that would mean. He is exalted above all rule and authority and power and dominion over every possible dimension, if you will. Which means, remember the context of the ancient Roman Empire. To say that Jesus is Lord is a political statement, a threatening statement to them. Because the one thing that you had to say in most social settings was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. He's the one above everyone else, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. No one compares to him. And here comes Paul in prison saying, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. He is the one over every possible power. So that is very, very applicable to us, right? Your favorite politician is not a competitor to the power of Jesus who has been raised. The U.S. president is not above. There is one higher. There is one above. In not, even, not only that, but in this sort of power-hungry world, this power is accessible to everyone. To everyone. You know, it's not about who you know. You don't have to network. You don't have to climb the ladders, figure out the right levers of power. He is exalted above all powers so that they all get demoted to the place where they cannot get in your way to access God. Do you see how incredibly revolutionary that is? Incredibly democratizing, if you will. That no power can now get in your way to access the Lord of Lords. Wow. It's it's he's he's it's not even close. He's far above all rule and authority and power. Not just a little bit. Far above his immeasurably great power, Paul tells us. The immeasurable is the where we get the word for hyperbolic. It's hyperbolically great. There is truly no competitor to the Lord of Lords. Right, you can imagine Jesus confronting Pilate. And Pilate said, uh, don't you care about the power I have over you? Like the, the, the threat that I could, all the things I can do to you. And Jesus says, you, you cannot do anything unless my father gave it to you first. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame 
by triumphing over them. This really is challenging to believe, isn't it? Because you kind of wonder, well, where, where is the power? Where is it? Why don't I see it more? Well, one thing to realize is notice what Paul does not pray for. He's exclaiming this incredibly powerful grace, the incredible power of God, and notice what he does not pray for. He presumably knows this congregation. He was there for three years. He doesn't pray for comfort. He doesn't pray for an easy life. He doesn't pray that all their dreams will come true, that all their sappy Christmas wishes would come true. He doesn't pray that they would have superhuman strength. Like when we think of power, we think like either political power or maybe we think of Marvel more now. Like, why didn't he pray that we could just fly around? Well, it's because of what he did pray for. That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know him. To know the hope that we have. The glorious inheritance of the saints, that death has been defeated. Remember, the powers that have been demoted, the things that cannot get in our way as we try to access God, include death. Not just people, not just evil systems, it includes those too. It includes death. It includes sin. That's what we need to know. Because if you know this, you really don't need to know anything else. If you know that this is the Lord, you don't really need to know anything else. So I would encourage you to dare to ask to know this. But that's only the first two points. And this last point is a bit fills me with a bit of trepidation to even try and explain. I have to say, it would have been a lot easier, at least for my job, to stop at verse 21. And it would have been really great and glorious to stop at verse 21, because look at who Jesus is. We can pray to this Jesus. He is over everything. No competitor. Hallelujah. Let's go to chapter 2. But then he says... He put all things under his feet. Okay, okay, we get that too. Psalm 110, he says that. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What? The, incre- the immeasurably great and supreme Lord has been given to the church. 
God's power that is, has no competitor finds its fullness in the church. Is this, is this a letdown? Is this, you feel like, you want to say to Paul, have you been in church before? Just to be clear, I did not write the letter to Ephesians. And hopefully no pastor would have written verses 22 and 23, at least certainly on their own merits. But it's there. And we have to deal with it. He has been given to the church or for the sake of the church, to the advantage of the church, which is his body. So this is the first time we see this metaphor here, a big, big metaphor for Paul. I don't know if it's right to call it a metaphor, though, because he doesn't say it's like his body. He says it's his body. And we are growing up into him who is the head. So it seems very logical to then think the church is simply the manifestation of Jesus on earth. And I think you would find, if you were to read more of the New Testament, that is what he says. That Jesus is Lord, King of kings, exalted, ascended in the heavens, and as a human is still in the heavenly places, not manifest by sight. And yet what is manifest by sight is his body. And maybe this too start, makes you want to start to run out. Here we go. The church getting a big head. But he's not done there. It's not just his body. The manifestation of him in the world. It's also his fullness. Fullness, fullness, fullness. Fullness is, is presence language. It's, it's where he, he fills it. And so I think it, it's meant to remind us of when Solomon prayed. Solomon built the temple in the Old Testament. Finally, it gets built and he prays, God, we know you cannot be contained in any building, but be here. Fill this place. The God who fills everything, everywhere, who is everywhere present, Fill this place. I think that's what he's getting at here. That one who is at work in the world. He certainly is at work outside the church. He certainly, we are told, all things are going to be united in him. He's already Lord over all things. So it's not to deny any of those things. But... It still says he, it, the church is the fullness of Christ. So, that makes a couple things clear, I think. It forbids us from saying certain things. Or believing or acting on certain things. Forbids us from saying things like, my church is when I go for a walk in the woods. Not only does it not make any sense of the word church, but it doesn't make sense of 
Jesus, apparently. Because if you were to find, if you're looking for the fullness of this Jesus, he says, don't go to the woods. Well, you can have a church in the woods, but you get the point. Don't just look at the ocean, unless it's a church gathering at the feet of the, in the beach. Because those do not equal the church, the presence of Jesus. It also means, I think, I mean, that, that I like the woods. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm listening to the book, The Hidden Life of Trees, and it's amazing. It's like the trees are alive and they talk to each other somehow. It's just not the fullness of Jesus. So this also means that you can't really say with much integrity, I like Jesus, but not the church. That's a popular one today, isn't it? That's a popular one, and man, is that easy to say. Notice how easy that is. Because that means your relationship to Jesus is all on your terms. You don't have anyone you don't like. You don't have anyone you don't agree with, disagree with, who sings bad, who smells. You don't have to deal with any of that. You can just sit in your own private little room and worship the Jesus who is made in your image. And that is not the Lord who is above all powers and authorities and dominions. It is simply a cop-out. It is a cop-out. It is kind of like saying, I, I love humanity. I love, you know, I'm cosmopolitan. I love all people. But my neighbors really get on. I cannot stand being with my neighbors. It's like, that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. Anyone can love an idea. Love the real person in front of you. Or maybe, you know, it's like having a best friend you grew up with, you are very similar in all sorts of ways, but then they get married and you can't stand his spouse. Yeah, but something would be wrong there, wouldn't it? I mean, well, we are told that the church is the bride of Christ. So it seems like you cannot love Jesus and not love the church. And then if you take those negatives out, it seems like you can also say your love of Jesus equals, parallels, is always in consonant with your love of the church. Realize, you, you think it's hard to listen to this. Imagine trying to say it. But it's there. In all of the sinful manifestations of the church, is what he says. It's not like he didn't know. It's not like Paul didn't know. There's a, Paul's putting out fires all over the place in the New Testament. It was not some pristine, ideal church. He was always dealing with sin. And yet he says, I have chosen to dwell here in my fullness. 
So I think if you, when we struggle, and believe me, pastors struggle too to simply come to church or value church or be devoted to church. But when we struggle with that, give the reason not to go to church. Just give it to Jesus and imagine what he would say. Right? Well, the people are really annoying. I died for those people. Well, I can learn a lot more if I just read on my own. How big of a mind do you think you have? Your heart is deceitful. And you need people to tell you that. I'm just going to become holy on my own. No, you will not. Because to be holy, to be walking in the Spirit, when you look at the fruits of the Spirit, they are all communal. They are all communal. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, patience. So I think this encourages us to find, discover the power that is in the church. A power that is meant to be radically, radically humble. Not worldly, not impressive in worldly terms. But it does mean that we should demote all these other competing sources. So I think if you want to find life we can say, come to church. Find life in the midst of death. Come to church. Do you want to have all of your sins forgiven? Come to church. That may be the easy one. Do you want to have all of your sins actually dealt with? Come to church. Do you want to be transformed into the image of the perfect human, come to church. To actually be a part of changing the world, come to church. To be a part of a place where relationships are reconciled, hearts and souls are transformed, where no one is to be in need, that's supposed to be the church. Not because we are impressive, certainly, but it is because our Lord, against all odds, against all powers who tried to, comp- who tried to compete, It is because our Lord has said, I will not leave you or forsake you. The fullness of who I am is here. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to pray like this. Teach us to believe this, to 
be the sort of church that is worthy of this. As if we could ever even say that, Lord. We know that we need your power to even be able to say it. God, we pray for the power of your grace. We pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in us, the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.